good to see all of you who have come to gather for worship with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. And let me just say what an exciting day it has been to be able to, to celebrate, uh, as we did this morning, the baptism of Pharaoh when she came through those waters and be able to experience that and to rejoice uh, in that with, with her and with her family and us here's our church family. Uh, and this morning we also had a husband and wife who came forward and were baptized together in our first service. And, 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 and we had another young man who came forward. And, and what a truly honoring thing it is to be a part of a church family where we see people's lives continuing to be changed and they're following through in obedience and, and saying, I want to identify with the Lord and I want, I want to identify with this church family. What a, what, a wonderful, what a wonderful thing it is. And, and I know that today is Super Bowl Sunday. And listen, there's no one here who is any more excited about it today than I am as a lifelong Falcons fan. I have always ex been excited for them. But I want you to know something with all sincerity. There is nothing that is more exciting than to be able to gather with God's people in God's house, to be able to sing songs, to be able to reflect on the goodness of God, on the love that He has lavished upon us, to allow our emotions to overflow just as they already have this morning as we reflect on how good God is and to be able to experience what we've experienced this morning. There'll be, a, there'll, there'll be 90 or 100,000 people in the stadium and, and 100 and some odd million people watching it all over the the, the TVs tonight, but I want you to know there are there's no more excitement than what is happening in heaven right now as they rejoice with the fact that we God's people are gathered together to praise Him. Amen. That's right. Let's thank the Lord this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter, Mark chapter one. This morning we are going to continue our study through Mark's Gospel that we began. Uh, a few weeks ago and we're going to continue today and last week we went through the first 13 verses of chapter 1 which is really an introduction uh, by Mark to what the beginning of the gospel of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about and so we, we looked last week and we examined the preaching and the practice of John the Baptist we examined the the implications of Jesus's baptism that took place there and then we also looked at what took place with Jesus going into that time of temptation but today I want us to pick up in verse 14 we looked at verse through, uh, finished verse 13 last week. We want to pick up with verse 14 this week and read down through verse 20. So if you have your scriptures open, follow along with me as I read. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And he immediately called to them and and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us about you, what it teaches us about us, and what it teaches us about what our response to you ought to be. And I pray that that would be clear to us this morning as we study your word together. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I began reading this passage, you may have noted there at the beginning of verse 14 
that, that Mark just sort of nonchalantly mentions the fact that Jesus' ministry in Galilee began after John the Baptist had been imprisoned. Now, I, I brought this point out last week, and I actually reiterated it again this past Wednesday night during my Bible study, that, that when Mark writes his gospel, he, his purpose is not to include every single detail that occurred in the ministry and life of Jesus. Mark's gospel is not a biography. Rather, it is a story of about the gospel itself. It's about the inbreaking power of the good news of what the gospel is in people's lives. And consequently, what we see here is that Mark is not so interested in telling us every detail that has taken place. He's not interested in just giving us, uh, uh, recounting different events in time. Rather, he's wanting to recount momentous events that ultimately reveal to us who Jesus is, tell us why he came, and then tell us what the impact that made upon those to whom he came in contact with, and even to you and me. So what that means is that when Mark gives us information like this, he's not prone to give us unnecessary information. You see, though he may not provide us with everything that uh, the particular text may point to, what he does provide us gives us information that Mark tells us is important. And in fact, what we note is that when, by telling us there at the beginning of verse 14 that Jesus' ministry launched out after John had, the Baptist had been in prison actually provides us with a time stamp. It, it sort of gives us a time stamp that marks the beginning of Jesus bringing us face to face with the inbreaking power of the gospel. And in fact, I want you to notice from the first point on your outline this morning just how important this is. The first point on your outline that you should have in your bulletin this morning is this. Jesus came at a radical time preaching a radical message. Jesus came at a radical time preaching a radical message. Now, it's really kind of hard to know exactly how much, but we know that a, a, a good deal of time has passed between the end of verse 13 when Jesus emerged from being victorious in the 40 days of temptation and then what we see at the end of verse 14 when he begins preaching the gospel there in Galilee. We know that time has passed and the reason we know that is because he tells us, Mark does, that John the Baptist had been imprisoned. All the details about that imprisonment you can find in Luke's gospel. Mark doesn't tell us that here. Mark is simply wanting to communicate to us that John's role as a forerunner for Christ his role as one who, who, as we saw last week, was, was to prepare the way for the Messiah by calling people to, to make their hearts ready for the Messiah's imminent arrival. Well, that, that ministry had come to an end. In fact, John's imprisonment actually opens the door and actually serves as the stimulus for Jesus to begin his own preaching ministry in Galilee. Consequently, we learn that what Mark tells us here is really the beginning of the fulfillment of what John the Baptist has said would happen. Back in verses 7 and 8, we looked at it last week. John said, there's going to be one who comes after me who's greater than I am, whose, whose shoe I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie. And he says, not only that, but I baptized you with water. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What we see happening here is the beginning of the fulfillment of that. You might also recall that when John the Baptist, some of his disciples came to him, they had noticed that Jesus, in his, beginning his ministry, had started to attract large crowds. And they became jealous of that, and they went to John the Baptist. They said, look, are you concerned about, about Jesus? And John the Baptist, in, in, in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 28, says, you yourselves bear me witness that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. 
And then he goes on to say this. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Brothers and sisters, what Mark tells us here, beginning in verse 14, tells us the fulfillment of that actually coming to pass. That John the Baptist, with his imprisonment, his star was beginning to decrease. His, his role as a preparatory minister for, for the coming Messiah was now coming to a close. And the Messiah was at hand. Jesus Christ had come. And his, he must increase. His star was on the rise. And that's exactly what Mark begins to tell us. Now let me point this out to you. There's a difference between what, what John the Baptist had proclaimed and what Jesus was proclaiming. See, Mark tells us that John was preaching for people to prepare their hearts for the coming kingdom that was about to come and take place. There was an imminent arrival of one who would come. But when Jesus came preaching concerning the gospel, he says in verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the kingdom was no longer something that was going to come in the future. It was something that was in the now. It was in the here and present. Listen, he says it this way, by saying that the time is fulfilled, what he says is that the threshold, the threshold had been reached. The best way I can think of to try to explain that to you is this. You take a cup of coffee, you get that pot and you start pouring that thing up if you don't have a Keurig, you know. <laughs> but old school, pouring, pouring out of the pot into the cup of coffee. And, and maybe you look away for a second and you don't pay attention and you look back and all of a sudden that coffee is all the way to the brim of that cup. As a matter of fact, you stop real quick because you know if you let one more drop of coffee hit that cup, what's going to happen? It's all going to spill over the sides and come down. Understand that's exactly what Jesus is saying as regards to the kingdom of God. He says it is here. The threshold has been, has been reached. It's starting to spill over the sides and now it's all among you. It's not something in the future. It's now. And Jesus is saying that is the gospel. Therefore, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, how is that going to be displayed? How do we know that? Well, as we continue to look through and study God, Mark's gospel, we're going to see how it's displayed. It's going to be displayed in the fact that Jesus comes in and he performs miracles and signs among the people. It's going to be displayed through his subduing the, 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 the kingdom of darkness and, and sub, subduing the demons that were, were inhabiting people and calling them out. It's going to be displayed in his restoring health to those who were sick. It's going to be displayed through him banishing the effects of sinfulness in people's lives and even forgiving that sin. This is the ministry that Jesus said, it's no longer out there, it is now, it is here. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Make no mistake about it, this was a radical time. Jesus, the Messiah, had arrived on the scene announcing the inbreaking power of the gospel had arrived. And listen, at that radical time, he then began to deliver a very radical message. The radical message is this, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Here Jesus' message in John's sort of parallel. We looked at this last week. John preached also a message of repentance. Jesus comes along and is also preaching a message of repentance. And in fact, we looked at what repentance actually means. Repentance is, it, it means having a changed mind that results in changed actions. Repentance is so much more. Sometimes we get it confused. We think to repent means that we need to feel sorry for our sins. You do need to have a godly sorrow for your sins, but repentance involves so much more than just feeling sorry for your sins. In fact, it involves a lot more. Understand this, true repentance involves reversing course, changing direction, changing action, specifically as it relates to the proclamation of the gospel, 
To repent means to abandon your sinful lifestyle and to turn from your old self-centered way of living and embrace your new life as a royal subject of Christ the King. Unfortunately, though, repentance is often preached as something that just sort of happens on its own. Sometimes repentance is just, is just given to us as something that we as an individual just need to do in and of our own ability. And listen, when the message of repentance is preached and misinterpreted in that way, it becomes little more than a message of good advice. A message that some, sometimes comes across like this. Well, if you'll do this, or if you'll stop doing that, then, then listen, you'll have a much more fulfilled and a productive life. But I want you to understand the message that Jesus came preaching was much more radical than that. Notice that when Jesus preached, he did not preach a message of repentance alone, but rather he preached a message of repentance that was accompanied by faith. He said, repent and believe in the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson has given us an excellent explanation of why these two must go together, why repentance and faith must go together. He says this, only through receiving the good news of the king, and that is his proclamation of forgiveness of new power and new power, only then can we ever turn our backs on sin and live in a way that pleases God. We abandon all of our efforts to rule our own lives and establish our own kingdoms, but we succeed in doing that only when Jesus exercises his royal power over us through our trust in him and the message that he brings us from God. On the other hand, I think it's also good for us to note that Jesus' message when he began preaching in Galilee was not simply believe in the gospel. Now listen, the scriptures teach us very clearly that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. We don't believe that you can put anything with faith in order to be saved. And yet we do also understand this. When Jesus came preaching, he affirmed that our belief in the gospel must be a belief that changes the life. As a matter of fact, Kent Hughes has written this. He says, if you say that you believe, but there is no substantial changes in your life, you had better consider carefully whether you truly believe. He goes on to write this. For us to truly understand the radical nature of the message that Jesus preached, we should consider that if Jesus were to come into our world today, say he were to just show up in Buford, Georgia, start walking up and down the streets and walking up and down our neighborhoods and calling out to us as we came home from work and as we were out in the yard doing the things that we were doing, he says this, he would call for us to believe in him, but he, was all, but he would also call for us to cease our adulteries, to repent of our materialism. He would call for us to renounce our gossip and our jealousies, and he would call for us to repent of our lying. In other words, he would call for us to believe in him, and he would do so with urgency, but he would also call for a life that was changed. Why? Well, because he said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Friends, let me say this to you. The timing and the message that Jesus preached is no less radical today than it was when he preached it to those Galileans back in the first century. 
You and I must continue to ask ourselves the same question that his message would have forced them to ask themselves. Have I believed in the gospel? Have I placed my faith and my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? The next question that must come from that is, have I repented? Has my faith in Jesus resulted in a life that has been changed by the power of the gospel? Is my life characterized by a continued and constant spirit of repentance? Now, as those questions just kind of hang out there in front of us, and that's kind of what comes from verses 14 and 15, notice what Mark does next. He provides us with some illustrations of what it looks like when lives truly have been changed by the power of the gospel. In fact, notice the second point on your outline this morning. It's this, the radical message that Jesus preached results in a radical call. The radical message results in a radical call. Beginning in verse 16, Mark moves us down to the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. That's where the, the scene transitions to. And the Sea of Galilee was, was a, a body of water there that, that was about 12 miles long, and at its widest point, it was about six miles across. And all around the perimeter of that sea was dotted with little fishing towns, little, little, little different fishing villages. In fact, from my research uh, about the Sea of Galilee this last week, I found out that it was a place that was really teeming with fishermen. The first century historian Josephus actually tells us why that place was so popular for fishing. Number one, it had a lot of fish in it. There were a lot of fish in the, in the sea. That was good. But here's the other thing. There were a lot of different kinds of fish in that sea. In fact, in the Sea of Galilee, it was known for having specific species of fish that were unique to the Sea of Galilee. They, they didn't exist elsewhere. And so consequently, many of those fishermen, they, they engaged in catching fish and some of these unique ones, they had engaged then in an export trade into other regions and other areas. And so it was a very lucrative, potentially very profitable business to be a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee in the first century. And listen, that's the kind of fishing that we find taking place there when, when, when Jesus shows up. It was the kind of hard work commercial fishing that takes place, not the recreational relaxing fishing that we make. Well, there's nothing recreational relaxing about the fishing that I do. Because I can't catch fish. Barry Parker's in the back, he'll tell you. He knows for a fact, I can't catch fish. So it's nothing relaxing about it to me. But, but these guys, this was their job. This was their, this was their, their livelihood. It was, it was hard work. And we see that because Mark tells us that, that Simon, or Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, they're in the boat and they're casting their nets out. And, and the way that that verb shows up is a repeated casting. They were casting it out, they were reeling it back in, seeing what they had in, casting it out again. These were very heavy nets. To those nets were attached very heavy weights that would cause them to sink down. And so you can just imagine the repetitive nature of doing that over and over and over again in order to catch fish. That was part of the work that was going on. But then sometimes you would throw those nets out and you'd catch trash or different things in there and it would cause the nets to, to, to cut them or whatever the case may be to damage the nets. And so that's what John and James were doing. They were bringing those nets back in on their boat and mending them, fixing them back up so that they could throw it back out. This was the kind of work that was being engaged in. And the reason that I point all that out to you is because it was in this environment, this hardworking, labor-intensive, but potentially profitable world of commercial fishing that Jesus walks 
and illustrates once more the radical nature of the inbreaking power of the gospel. You see, when Mark recounts this story to us, he doesn't record all the small talk that would have probably taken place. It's not his point to give a small talk. Rather, he simply records the command that he gives to Simon, Peter, and Andrew. He says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Our English translations sort of lose a little bit of the forcefulness of that, that imperative, that command that he gives. In fact, one commentator has said it's a sharp military command that, that Jesus gives. Something more along the lines of this. Come on over behind me. Get behind me and follow me. Get behind me in order to be behind me as I move forward. That's really the, the more of an understanding of what Jesus says. And when he says he's going to do, when they get behind him, I will make you become fishers of men. In other words, once you become my disciples, once you become my followers, I'm going to give you a new purpose in life. And I want you to just think about for just a moment how radical that is. Just think about yourself. Maybe it's, I don't know, Tuesday afternoon. Wherever you are on Tuesday afternoon doing whatever it is that you do, on Tuesday afternoon, maybe you're at your job, you're in a factory, you're in a plant, you're selling, you're doing whatever, you're at a desk, you're, maybe you're home, maybe you're planning, maybe you're fixing, you're doing whatever, it is. you're in school. Wherever you are on Tuesday afternoon, I want you to just get that in your mind, what's normal for you, and then I want you to think about this. Suddenly a man walks up to you and says, drop everything, come get in behind me, and follow me wherever I go. How do you think you would respond? Even if you knew the guy, and I believe that there's much in the other gospels that would tell us that, that these four fishermen had already met Jesus and, and had learned of him before that. But even if that's the case, listen, consider how radical and how extreme that call was to them. Drop everything, walk away from everything that you've ever known and from everything that you've ever been and accept a new identity and a new role. And if you think that I'm overstating the scenario, notice that when, J when Jesus calls James and John down in verse 20, notice that when they left, they left their father and they left hired servants in the boat. Both of those things are crucial pieces of information because it tells us that by leaving and following Jesus, they turned their backs on the family business. They turned their backs on their relationship with their father, a business that was large enough that they had to hire other people to come in and help them do. Listen, if we're honest with ourselves and with this text, we have to admit that what occurs here is truly a striking and amazing example. Mark shows us in starkest terms what it means to repent and believe the good news. He tells us what it means to accept the challenge of discipleship. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Jesus is telling these men, I want priority over your career. I want priority over your family. I want priority over every aspect of your life. Knowing me, loving me, resembling me, serving me must become the supreme passion of your life. Everything else comes second. Friends, Jesus' call upon our lives today is no less radical than it was on those four disciples. His radical message of repentance and faith will result in a radical call upon your and my life as well. 
Sinclair Ferguson notes that the Lord's call may not necessarily involve such a dramatic change as, as what we do every day in our occupations, though that certainly does happen. But Christ's call and His kingly reign over our lives does mean that from that point forward, those things are no longer at our disposal. In fact, he says this, my family, my occupation, and even my profitable business partnership all must now be at the disposal of Jesus Christ. Think about this. If we're honest with one another, most of the time our approach to the Lord's call for discipleship is something more along these lines. Most of the time it sounds something like, Lord, I'll obey, obey you if my career thrives. I'll obey you if my health is good. I'll obey you if my family is together. But whenever we answer the Lord's call upon our lives in that manner, we actually are saying that whatever is on the other side of the if, whatever that may be, whether it's our careers, our family, our finances, our health, doesn't matter. Whatever is on the other side of the if, that's what we're saying is our real master. That's what we are saying that we truly worship. But as his call upon Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John illustrate, when Jesus calls you, friends, he expects him to be the goal. He must be your master. Nothing else can come before him. Now let me point out one last thing to you before I close this morning that I found to be astounding about this passage because Jesus came at a radical time preaching a radical message that resulted in a radical call to which these four fishermen responded with a radical obedience. That's the fourth thing. The third thing that I want you to see this morning. The radical, Jesus' radical call requires a radical obedience. The obedience we see here is displayed by the disciples is radical, not only because of the nature of what they were having to leave, not only because they were forsaking family and employment and security and routine, that in and of itself is radical. But notice the repeated refrain that we find in verses 18 and 20. Simon, Peter, and Andrew, what? Immediately left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, James and John did what? Immediately left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that immediately is one of Mark's favorite words. He uses it well more than 40 times throughout his gospel. Here he uses it to describe the speed with which these disciples responded to the call that Jesus placed in front of them. To quote Hughes once more, we, while we might expect there to have been a lapse in time before the response came, a time to sort of talk things through, figure out if, if, if this was the right timing, if that was the right timing, Mark tells us that there was no pause. There was not even a second look. Certainly that's not the case with everyone that the Lord called to follow him that we read about in Scripture. And matter of fact, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, you find two would-be disciples that Jesus called to come be his followers. And one, one replied, well, Lord, let me go bury my father first. Seems like a legitimate request. The second one said, let me go back to my house and say goodbye to my family first. Also seemingly to be a decent request. Jesus rebuked both of them, saying, if you're going to put your hand to the plow, don't turn around and look back. There's delayed obedience, delayed response. Jesus, Jesus doesn't, doesn't allow for it. But there's also disobedience that we see in Scripture. You remember the man named the, that we refer to as the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus. He kept all the commandments. What lackest I yet? 
Jesus says, go sell all you own, take the proceeds, give it to the poor, then come follow me. The Bible says the man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he was a man of many possessions. To be able to turn loose of those things and to relinquish that was more than this young man could bear to imagine. He walked away from Jesus having clearly chosen the God that he would worship. Now here's the thing. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know what happened to these other two would-be disciples. Were they, were they offered other opportunities to repent and believe the gospel? Were they presented with the other chances to respond to the obedience to follow the Lord? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Here's what we do know, though. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as well as others of the disciples to whom we will be introduced later, they did repent. They did believe. They did respond obediently to his call. And as Kent Hughes has written, here was the difference it made in their lives. The horizon of these fishermen's lives had been bound by the margins of the Galilean, River, uh, Galilean Sea. But then Christ came and their world changed. In place of Galilee came the world. John was to become Bishop of Ephesus. Peter went to Rome. Andrew went as far as the borders of Russia. Their hearts were enlarged to take in the whole world. Their minds, once circumscribed and committed to the smallest of interests, now overflowed with deep thoughts. They became theologians, thinkers, sociologists, psychologists, and strategists, all because of the gospel. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to know that is what the radical nature of the gospel does. It intrudes. It breaks in. It overtakes and it transforms our lives. In all the centuries that have come and gone since this passage that we have read about this morning took place, I want you to know this. The gospel has not changed. The good news still calls for sinners to repent and to believe in the gospel. Furthermore, the call has not changed. Jesus still calls you and me to follow him and to be his disciples. And I want you to also know this. The proper response to that call has not changed. It is still to immediately forsake everything, abandon all other gods, and live obediently to the Savior who died on the cross for your sins. And all of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The radical nature of the inbreaking power of the gospel requires sinners like you and me to repent of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus who calls us to obediently leave everything to follow Him. This is my prayer this morning. My prayer is that each and every one of you in this room will come to grips with the truth of the gospel and the demands for obedience that it places upon your life and that you will repent of your sins, believe in that gospel, and receive, receive the blessings that God offers you through Christ. Because brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.